Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, it's going to be on page 20. And um, if you have any questions as we work through the text this morning, you can go to slido.com as always and, and type them into the box there. Use RevCDA as the event prompt and uh, we'll take a look at those when we're done. Let me pray for us one more time. Lord God, we are um, coming into this room this morning from a lot of different places. Um, Some of us are excited that it is a Sunday and we get to worship together. Others of us are are kind of dragging. Uh, Some of us are sleepy and worn out. Um, Others have had a rough weekend. Um, But God, for a few moments, I just pray that we would uh, be able to set aside some of those cares and concerns that we would uh, lean in to what you're speaking to your people today. God, I pray that my words would be your words and and any of my words that are foolish or unwise would just be forgotten. Um, God, I just pray that as we uh, submit ourselves to Scripture, submit ourselves to um, the character of, of Christ, the Spirit of Christ in us, uh, that we would be transformed, that we would be shaped uh, over a period of time into people that look more and more like Jesus. And I just pray that this would be one component of that work this morning. Um, God, help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the way my household works is we eat dinner and then we clear off the table and the children take their dishes and they just like drop them in the sink and they wander off into somewhere else. And I go over to the sink and I see hopefully not yet crusty dishes, Uh, but sometimes, hours later, I get to the sink and I see crusty dishes, bits of food and sauce and all kinds of things just stuck to them. And I say, family, if you would rinse your dishes immediately when dinner is over, they would not get crusty like this. And then I go, Oh, man, that sounds like my dad. Because <laughs> the reality is, more and more and more, now that I'm, uh, I have children, now that I'm in my 40s, I'm reminding myself of my father. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's kind of a scary thing. But the reality is I am shaped, I have been shaped over a lifetime by my dad, and that just comes out of me. The truth is we often become like, and sometimes drastically unlike, our parents. In the language of Genesis, we are made in their likeness. We get some positive traits from our parents. We also learn bad habits. Uh, unhealthy ways of living from our parents. Sometimes we pendulum swing away from something we didn't like about our upbringing and we do something completely different than our parents. 
Richard Plass in his book, The Relational Soul, says, it is virtually impossible to overstate the significance of our learned relational attachment system in the early years and its profound influence on our relational experience as adults. The attachment system is so significant and comprehensive that it literally organizes and influences the development of other critical neurological systems in the body. He goes on to say that this happens within the first 18 months of life. And this is pretty frightening, especially if you have young children. Because before you realize what you're doing, you've already screwed them up. Even the healthiest parent-child relationships are marred by sin on both sides of the equation. Sin in the parents and sin in the children. Those of you that are young and newly married, you're, you're learning things maybe subconsciously about yourselves that you have taken from your parents, that you're only starting to recognize now that you live with an intimate partner and you're bumping into one another all the time. You're starting to learn about the things that were normal in your family that weren't really that normal. There's a lot of speculation in the scholarship about Abraham's relationship to Isaac and the picture that we get of Isaac in chapter 26. Chapter 26 is really the only chapter we get on Isaac. This is kind of his family story, but the previous chapter was about his sons. The next chapter is going to be about his sons. This chapter is really the only one about him. Dr. Richard Middleton makes the argument that Isaac's um, ordeal being offered as a sacrifice. You remember that from a couple, ch couple chapters ago? His father took him to be sacrificed to Yahweh, and um, obviously that didn't end up happening. God intervened, but it was a, a whole thing. Middleton argues that this uh, resulted in some trauma that shaped the man that he becomes in this chapter. That seems pretty reasonable. I've never been tied up on a, an altar and had a knife almost plunged into my chest by my dad, but it seems like that would be pretty problematic. And that's all speculation, but you could, you, I mean, you could imagine it, right? But regardless of, of, of how we would want to like psychoanalyze Isaac's character in this chapter, Moses, the author of Genesis, is explicitly using this text to connect Isaac back to his father. With Isaac's sons behaving badly in the previous chapter and in the next chapter, it's important for us as the reader to remember that God is faithful to his promises. And the way the author's doing that is he's going to draw a straight line from the father, the founder of the faith, Abraham, to the son, Isaac. And I want to point out just, and there's probably a lot more, but I'm going to point out five different ways that Abraham is connected to Isaac in this chapter. We read in the beginning of 26, there was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines at Gerar, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and bless you. For I will give you these lands, all these lands to you and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. So Isaac settled in Gerar. So I, Isaac is going south. Gerar is a city that is uh, on the way to Egypt. 
And so we're meant to think that Isaac is on his way to Egypt, just like his father was at the beginning of, of chapter 12. We saw a famine in the land, and Abraham decides there's no food here, so I'm going to go to Egypt. And it turned out fairly badly for Abraham there. He, he, he didn't trust God. And, and so just like his father, Isaac seems to be taking the same path. But Yahweh, God, appears to Isaac for the very first time and declares a promise. And this is a promise that we've heard in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, multiple times to Abraham. Now it's given for the first time explicitly to his son. And this promise is an invitation to trust God, to trust Yahweh. And and God says it's, it's interesting that it's not on the basic of Isaac's trust, not on his own relationship with God, but Abraham's. Yahweh will keep his promise to Isaac because of Abraham. And so that's the challenge that Isaac has, is I'm going down to Egypt, there's a famine in the land, but God has shown up, reaffirmed this promise, told me to stay. Am I going to trust him? Am I going to trust in the work that he has done in my father's life on my behalf? In our world, in our life, God also gives his promises to us as Christians, right? And and if you ask, why does God give us promises? Why does he give us blessings? Why does he promise a future and a hope? Is it because we're so great? Because we're so faithful? Because we're so trusting? No. What basis does God give us promises? Anybody? His goodness. Yeah. His goodness through Christ, right? Through Jesus. We are the recipients of the promises of God because of what Christ has done. In the book of Romans, Paul says, therefore, there is now now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is no condemnation in Christ because of what he has done. And this is so deeply important for us to internalize. And so many of us, maybe all of us struggle with this. There is a voice inside you that pushes back against this. But the truth of the gospel is is that if you are a Christian this morning, you are not condemned. You are not hated. You are not dirty. You are not unloved. The truth of the gospel for you this morning, Christian, is that you are accepted. You are secure. And you are significant. All of these things and more are true about you in Christ. And for those of you maybe this morning that are not in Christ, you're not a Christian, you're here and you're visiting and maybe you've been a part of our community for a while or this is your first time and you are so welcome to be here. We are so happy that you are here. We love you. Jesus loves you. But if you would say, I'm not a Christian this morning... These promises, they don't apply to you. And a sense of condemnation or fear and guilt, those might be right things that God is using to get your attention because he wants you to come to Jesus. He wants to give you his 
promises in Christ. And the invitation for you this morning is to accept that, to believe, to trust. Just like we see Isaac, he has an opportunity to trust the promises of God or to keep going the way he intends to go to Egypt, to get away from his problems. But that's the offer, is to trust in Christ. And we doubt this about ourselves. We doubt that if you are a Christian today, maybe you have doubts that you are loved. Maybe it's hard for you to wrap your mind around the fact. And maybe this is even subconscious. Maybe you haven't even done the work to pull this out of your soul, but maybe this is based on patterns that you've inherited from childhood trauma. The way others have belittled you, shown you, taught you that you are worthless, that you do not matter. And so you just don't believe it. You don't trust. You look out for yourselves. Like Isaac, you make plans to go down to Egypt to take care of it on your own. Alan Noble in his book, You're Not Your Own, says the reason autonomy feels safe is that we think we can trust ourselves to look out for our own well-being, whereas others will always look out for their own well-being over and against ours to some extent or another. And and that's the fear, right? Like if I put my faith and trust in the work of someone else, that person ultimately doesn't care about me as much as I care about me, and I can't trust them with myself. But if you belong to Christ, you can trust Christ with yourself because he will never leave you, never forsake you, never abandon you, and always wants what's best for you. Isaac has a choice whether or not to reject his father's faith and repeat his father's faithlessness by caring for himself in his own way, his own wisdom, or by choosing to trust that Yahweh God knows best. And he chooses to stay in Gerar. He doesn't go down to Egypt. He walks by faith, faith that his father had, that his father taught him. He makes the right choice. But that's not the whole chapter. Next we see that that Isaac is connected to Abraham through fear and deception. Verse 7, when the the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. When Isaac had been there some time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from the window and was surprised to see Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Abimelech sent for Isaac and said, so she really is your wife. How could you say that she's my sister? And Isaac answered, because I thought I might die on account of her. Then Abimelech said, Why, what have you done to us? One of the people could have easily slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech warned all the people, whoever harms this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. So we see Isaac choosing to walk in his father's faith and then immediately follow in his father's fear. We've seen this twice before from Abraham that he goes into a place and he told his wife to claim that She is his sister. And we get the sense that that both in Abraham's life and Isaac's life, I, I trust God, but I don't really trust people. 
We put up barriers, operate out of a mode of distrust, can't be open and honest with others. We can't let them in because they will betray us. And this is a pattern of life for Abraham. In, in Genesis 20, 13, we read, so when God made me wander from my father's house, I said to her, Sarah, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. So in Genesis, we get two stories of them being caught in this lie, but it seems that wherever they go, they tell it. And this pattern of dishonesty and fear for Abraham becomes a pattern of dishonesty and fear in Isaac. A half-truth from Abraham's life, Sarah was his kind of half-sister, becomes a full-on lie for Isaac. This was... This was a habit for Abraham. It was, it was a, a coping mechanism to protect him from fear and preventing him from trusting more deeply in Yahweh, and it rubs off on his son. And I, I wonder, for, for many of us, what are the things that we have just picked up from parents or mentors or, or other family that, that are just sinful and broken but it's, it's just the way we grew up. It's the way we lived. It's, it's the way we dealt with the world. And we don't, we don't even realize it sometimes. Like, wow, yeah, I, I, I see things this way. I look at the world this way. Not because it's right, not because I've even given it much thought, but just because it's something that's worn off on me after years of experiencing a parent or another adult living out other sinful patterns. Abimelech sees the couple doing something that would be inappropriate for siblings to do. It's a funny word in Hebrew. It, it's, the, um, it's the verb form of Isaac's name. So it, it actually it says that, that they were Isaacing with each other, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> but it's obviously something that you wouldn't do with your sister. And Abimelech sees this and he calls him out. Isaac is rebuked by this pagan king who seems more concerned about sexual morality than Isaac is. And it's this black mark on Isaac's character that still, it connects him to the life of his dad. But even in the midst of this, the same story that we've seen throughout Genesis, God is still faithful. And that moves us to the third connection. We see that Isaac is connected to Abraham through humility. In verse 11, Isaac sowed seed in that land, and in that year he reaped a hundred times what was sown. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and kept getting richer until he was very wealthy. He had flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, and many slaves, and the Philistines were envious of him. Philistines stopped up all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, filling them with dirt. And Abimelech said to Isaac, leave us, for you are much too powerful for us. So Isaac left there, camped in the Gerar Valley, and lived there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, and that the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. He gave them the same names his father had given them. Then Isaac's servants dug up the valley, dug in the valley, and found a well of spring water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they argued with him. They dug another well and quarreled over that one too. So it so he named it Sitna. 
He moved from there and dug another, and they did not quarrel over it. He named it Rehoboth and said, For now the Lord has made space for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. So in the midst of this famine that Isaac is fleeing to Egypt to save himself from, he trusts in Yahweh not to do that and stays. In the midst of it, Isaac reaps a huge amount of crops. A hundredfold is like maximum crops, all the crops that you can handle. And this is obviously God's supernatural blessing on his life, but it makes the Philistines envious. Envy is a really dangerous thing. John Chrysostom says, Envy cannot simply accept others' success, but instead regards the neighbor's prosperity as a disaster for itself and is devastated by the neighbor's good fortune. Gregory the Great, who was the guy that came up with the seven deadly sins, if you're familiar, says, how great is their unhappiness who are made worse by the bettering of their neighbor, and in beholding the increase of another's prosperity are easily vexed within themselves and die of the plague of their own heart. What can be more unhappy than these who, when touched by the sight of happiness, are made more wicked by the pain of seeing it? Both of these Christian leaders from the past have the same thing to say, that envy is brutal. Envy takes you from a place where you should be rejoicing in the prosperity of a friend or a neighbor, or you should be glad that someone is doing well with their life and it twists it around so that you hate that about them, that you wish their own harm, that you cannot believe that they get good things. I, I do this all the time. Are you, do you, does anybody else feel that way? Like I compare myself, my situation to other people all the time. Why didn't God give me that? Why is it so hard for me to accomplish the thing that seems so easy for them? Don't I deserve to have the thing that they're getting? And that's an attitude that just rots my soul. This results for the Philistines in, in acting spitefully. They destroy Isaac's property. And Abimelech finally makes him leave the territory. And he moves on, and there's conflict. The word esek means argument. And he moves on again, and there's more conflict. The word sitna means hostility. And he moves on again, and everything seems to be okay. Rehoboth means open spaces. All of this stuff belongs to Isaac. It's either wells dug by his father or by him, and he gets pushed and pushed over and over again. And some interpreters see this as a character flaw in Isaac. He doesn't fight for what belongs to him. He doesn't stand up for himself. But I think this is another connection to his father, Abraham, and I think it's a good one. 
Way back in Genesis 13, we read this. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together, and there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are all relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. And if you go to the right, I will go to the left. In this passage, Abraham shows great humility in letting his nephew choose the best of the land. You pick whatever you want, Lot, and I'll just take the leftovers. Abraham was his elder. Abraham was the head of the tribe. Abraham had no reason, no need to be humble. No need to give Lot the preference, but he does it anyway. He chooses the lower place. And I think Isaac is walking in his father's footsteps. Is it ever good to let yourself be wronged, to not fight for your rights, to allow other people to mistreat you? Our culture would tell us no, never. Jesus, though, has some thoughts. Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Can you imagine a circumstance where someone wrongs you and then you just allow them to do it? Jesus seems to think that this will happen to us. And as we continue to read through the New Testament, we see it happen. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about all of the crazy things that are happening there. And he says, I've heard that some of you are are suing each other in the Roman courts. You've got a problem with your brother and you're just taking him to court. And he says, as it is, 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do this to brothers and sisters. He says, it would be better for you to just go, look, I'm going to let myself be wronged than it is to bring your dispute to the secular courts and fight for your rights. This isn't the only time in Hebrews 10, many of us in our community groups have been going through the book of Hebrews together. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author says, remember when the early days when after you'd been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were the companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance so that after you've done God's will, you may receive what was promised. The author of Hebrews reminds the church that there was a time when people came to them because they were followers of Jesus and took their stuff robbed them of their material possessions. And he says, remember when you accepted that with joy? 
because you knew that you have something better in Christ. And we see this in Isaac. We see this humility, this settled confidence in God that he is the one who ultimately matters. It might not be fair. It might be totally unjust, but I'm going to let God take care of it. There's a pastor in the 1780s named name's Charles Simeon. He uh, was appointed as a young man to Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. And he was, uh, their, their churches had a, a, a bishop structure, so he was hired by the bishop to pastor the church. And the congregation didn't want him, and they hated him for it. The board of the church did everything they could do to undermine him, including they, they hired the guy that they wanted to teach a weekly Sunday afternoon lecture for twice Simeon's salary. So this other guy came in every week and like just undid everything that Simeon did. Back in those days, their, their pews had, were like, had walls and could lock. And so the church members locked all the pews so that people from the town couldn't come in and find a seat on Sunday. So Simeon brought in a bunch of folding chairs and then the members of the congregation showed up and threw them out in the street. This went on for 12 years. Brutal. I just, I just can't even fathom that. And Simeon committed himself to God's word and to prayer, and he decided to pursue humility. He carried a note in his wallet that said, talk not about myself. And he wrote, I wished rather to suffer than to act, because in suffering, I could not fail to be right but in acting, I might easily do amiss. He decided by allowing this to take place, trusting that God is good and loved him and is sovereign over the affairs of the world, that he would always be in the right if he walked in humility. But if he stepped out to stand up for himself, to stand up for his rights, even in a, in a just way to stand up for the church, the, the people in the community that wanted to go to church, anytime he stood up, he ran the risk of doing it wrong, of walking in sin. And he just didn't want to do that. So he just took it. And slowly over time, his faithfulness to the gospel and his humble service transformed this church. And all the haters disappeared and he began discipling men and women that went out and made a huge impact for the kingdom of God around the world. He started, one of the things he did was he started one of the very first campus ministries in Cambridge for college students. And almost every, if you were a part of crew or InterVarsity Fellowship or any of these campus ministries, they all traced their roots back to the work that Simeon did in the, 18, or the 1780s. And God is faithful when we are humble. We see Isaac walking in humility just like his father before him. The fourth thing we see is, is worship. Isaac is connected to Abraham through worship. In verse 23, from there he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. So we built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Isaac's servants also dug a well there. So after this season of humility where, where God blesses Isaac over and over and over again, but his enemies push against him, 
God reaffirms his promise. He shows up and says, I will be with you. And so just like his father, Abraham, Isaac worships. He worships God. And what does this worship look like? The first thing is he builds an altar. Isaac recognizes that giving God the honor that he deserves costs us something. Building an altar would have taken time and resources. It means something to give God honor. Isaac is in Beersheba, and this is a place that his father used to live. Abraham planted a tree there as part of the worship space that he created. And so you can ask the question, why didn't Isaac just repurpose that space? There's already this space that Abraham had made, so why not just use that? But Isaac recognizes that his worship has to be his own. We don't get to inherit our parents' faith. As as much as we may benefit from it, like Isaac, Abraham's faith is a huge benefit to Isaac's life. Sooner or later, it has to become our own. Sooner or later, it has to be ours. And that requires something. It costs Isaac his time, his energy, his material wealth. He recognizes that the appropriate response to God's faithfulness is giving himself away in worship. And as you and I, as we recognize the promises of God toward us in Christ, it's the same thing. As we begin to believe that these things are true, the only reasonable thing that we can do is to give ourselves back to him in worship. Romans 12.1, Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is your true worship is sometimes translated, this is your reasonable service. And Paul says, because you ex- experienced God's mercy, because, not because of the things that you have to do or because of the rules he wants you to follow or because you have to earn something, but because he's already poured out on you his goodness and grace, because of that, the only thing that makes sense is that you'd pour yourself back out to him, that you'd give up yourself back out to him. And so God blesses Isaac immensely, and Isaac worships by building an altar. But then he also pitches his tent. Isaac doesn't just pass through this place of worship. He positions his family there. He wants to live in God's presence. And I think this is really important as an application for us. Do we have a perspective where we say, this is the place that I have committed to be in God's presence? And this is, this is what we do as, as a worshiping community of God's people. We will, we will make ourselves a home here in communion with God. We will pour out ourselves sacrificially in worship, and not because we're earning God's favor, but because we've already experienced it, and it just makes sense that we would give our lives to Him, and then we will do it together. We will say, this is who we are as God's people in this church And this is happening in in many different places around our city and and thousands of places around our country and even more greater thousands of places around our world. But to be a person that just doesn't just acknowledge God and worship God, but actually says, this is where we're going to be. This is where we're going to stay. This is what we're going to commit to with our families, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's really important. And again, our culture is, is, wants us to think that we belong to ourselves, that we are an island, that we don't really need any kind of connectivity. We can get it online. 
Just saw a video this week about arguing that all churches need to like lean heavily into online church because that's what the people want. And it's poison. It will kill us. We need to make the decision that we will be in a place at a time as a people and pitch our tents together, worshiping God. And this is what Isaac does, just like his father before him. And the last thing we see, the last way that Isaac is like his father is reputation. In 26, now Abimelech came to him from Gerar with a Hazath, his advisor, and Philcal, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? You hated me and sent me away from you. And they replied, we have clearly seen how Yahweh has been with you. We think there should be an oath between two parties, between you, between us and you. Let us make a covenant with you. You will not harm us just as we have not harmed you, but have done only what was good for you, sending you away in peace. You are now blessed by the Lord. So he prepared a banquet for them and they ate and drank and they got up early in the morning and swore an oath to each other and Isaac sent them on their way and he left them in peace. On that same day, Isaac's servants came to him about the well they had dug saying to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is still Beersheba today. So after all of this, the Philistines, Abimelech, his, his army commander, um, Ahazoth, may be like the guy in charge of his farms. We're not really sure what his job was. They all come to Isaac, and Isaac rightly goes, what do you want with me? You kicked me out of your town. Your herdsmen have continued to harass me. Leave me alone. But they say, we, we think God is with you. We can tell that, that Yahweh is doing something in you, and we think that we should make a peace treaty. They're preemptively just trying to make things nice. And this is what they do. But the thing is, is Isaac has a reputation. He has a reputation that Yahweh is with you. God is with you. You are blessed by God. After all of this mistreatment by these other people, they see the blessing of God in Isaac's life and they want to make peace. They want to be in right standing with this man who has such a connection to God. I think this is a, this is a hard word for us because the church in our country really has a reputation problem. Part of that is because our ethics run contrary to the values of the world around us. And that, that, sh- that will never change. We should never apologize for following Jesus and not our culture. But part of our reputation problem comes the fact that we lack humility and we do not live in a way that demonstrates the love of Christ to our culture. And it might not seem like that's a really big deal, but God seems to think our reputation is pretty important. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or as to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves, honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, and honor the emperor. 
Peter seems to think that we should live our lives paying at least some attention to our reputation among people outside the church. And he says that reputation, that good reputation is fostered and developed through submission and humility. Not only that, we read in Paul in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, Paul talks about what a church should look for when it's choosing its leaders. He's talking about elders, and he says, Furthermore, the elder, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Now, here's the thing about elders. Elders uh, aren't super Christians. To be called to the office of elder, you're not called to a higher ethical standard. However, you are called to be an example of what the standard is for the whole church. So Brian and I, when we uh, think through our calling as elders of this church, we're not looking at God's word and going like, yeah, we're, we're this kind of Christian over here and everybody else is just like normal. We're all normal. We're all members of the congregation together. But we have been called by God and, and by all of you to be examples of the church, in the church that we lead. And so other than the ability to teach, which is another qualification for elders, everything else in the elder qualification list is a character trait that we should all be aspiring to as Christians. And so for Paul to say that elders must have a good reputation among outsiders, if you want to be a leader in this church, you better be thought well of by those who don't know Jesus in your community it must be a big deal. If our church's leaders are not thought well of by those who aren't Christians, we have a big problem. And I don't mean that like you're always going to agree with non-Christians. I don't believe I don't mean that your values are always going to line up with non-Christians, but if if you are a <laughs> If you're a pariah in your town and everybody knows it and you're a pastor, it's a problem. I'm sure all of us know people who connect being a Christian to some specific church leader that either they know locally or they see nationally that is rude and offensive and does not model the character of Christ. And they say, I don't want to have anything to do with the church because of that guy. That is a shame. We need to care about our reputation. And we see at the end of this chapter that Isaac has a reputation that he knows God. And he's a mixed bag, right? Just like his father before him. We see him do some things that are really beautiful and good, and we see him do some things that are really terrible. Just like all of us but he ultimately trusts in the promises of God and walks in humility towards others. And we have been given so much more than Isaac has. Great and precious promises is what Peter tells us. And as we, as we wrap up this morning, this, this kind of brings us to back to this idea of um, inheriting from our parents 
right? We all live lives that where we can point back to the, the forces and the relationships and the structures and the habits and everything that has shaped us into the people that we are today. And some of that we rejoice in and some of that we go like, wow, that sucks. I really hate that about myself. I wish I, that didn't happen to me. Some of it maybe is, is vile and traumatic and wicked and it's been done to us and it's shaped us in really painful ways. But this morning, if you are in Christ... You've been adopted. (sighs) You've been adopted into a new family. You have a new father. And your heavenly father is good and kind and loves you unconditionally. And no matter what you are working through about yourself that is broken, marred by sin, shaped by your upbringing, and even the stuff that's just plain your fault, because we all have that too, our Heavenly Father loves us and accepts us and takes us under His wing, calls us His children and begins to see to it that his character starts to rub off on us. Just like Isaac is made in the image of his father Abraham, and he walks out many things that are similar to the life of his father, we are called in Christ to be like our father in heaven and our big brother Jesus we are given the tools and the abilities and the Spirit of God to walk out our lives in a way that looks like our Heavenly Father. And my prayer for us as a community is that we would be people who are becoming more and more people who trust deeply in those promises and commit to walking them out in our lives. And that's a, man, that's a long-term goal, isn't it? There's not like a six-week program that we can all go through to be made like Jesus. Don't you wish that were true? But just as though, just like you took, you know, 15, 16, 18, 20 years at home to be made in the image of your parents, it's going to take a long time to be remade into the image of Christ. That's the beautiful thing about his body, and he invites us all into this process of of character shaping by the power of his Holy Spirit. Uh, And and we're not called to do it alone. We're called to do it together in community. And my hope is that we would all be people that um, are just asking the question, "How how do I do more of that? How do I orient my life in such a way that I'm shaped more and more to be like God? Let's do some questions. What does that say? It seems that the conflict Isaac endures are resulting from his obedience to God by not going to Egypt. Yeah. 
That's a good observation. I resonate with that. Have you ever done the right thing, done the thing God called you to do and it got worse? I've been there. Sometimes that's, that's the trouble with making the right decision, right? God, you want to go here because it seems easy and God goes, no, I want you to do this because it's hard. Hmm. Yeah. Isaac is profoundly blessed, but it's also very difficult. But it serves as an opportunity to mold and shape his character. I think I, I think I say this all the time. I feel like I'm a broken record, but but our suffering, our our pain, the bad things that happen, those are some of the best opportunities for God to do a work in you. And when everything is easy, it doesn't really happen the same way. How do we stay faithful even when it seems like our obedience is the cause of our suffering? Similar question, right? Yeah. I think it's important to recognize that we should never be suffering alone. Because, and I, I mean, this is the thing about anonymous questions. Like, I don't, know what, I don't know what your suffering is. Your suffering may be something that you clearly should get out of. There are, there are instances where um, you need other people to affirm for you that the situation you are in is dangerous and wrong and you should remove yourself from it. That's not always the wrong answer. But it's really hard to figure that out alone. And so if you are in a season of suffering, and if you, don't, if you feel like, man, I'm, I'm doing what I believe God wants me to do, and things are going badly, whatever that looks like, I would just encourage you to have deep relationships with at least a couple other wise Christian people that can say, I'm not so sure that's what God wants for your, you. Or they can say, yeah, I, I think that's God's will for your life, but you know what? The suffering is hard right now, and I want to be there for you and pray with you through it. Or maybe, yeah, that is God's will, but the suffering is not a good thing, and you need to tweak some stuff in order to make things a little healthier. Every situation is going to be different. But I just, I think we so often live our whole Christian life as, a, as just an individual, you know, bumping into other people at church sometimes. I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to um, follow God's will for my life. I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm gonna, and those are all really good and right things. But if you're not bringing other people into that who can speak truthfully and honestly and, and real, real talk to you about those things, I mean, you're missing out on a lot of wisdom that, the, that God is trying to give you. Why do Abraham and Isaac lie, then both are blessed by Abimelech and get rich from it? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem right, does it? I think we talked about it when, when, I, when Abraham did this the first time, but God does this weird thing where he commits himself to people. Like, he, God knows everything bad about you. God knows all of the stupid decisions you're going to make. God knows all of the broken things you're going to be a part of. And he still goes, I want you for my family. And then after he's done that, that dumb thing that you do, he doesn't go, oh, no, I thought maybe you wouldn't do that. Because he knew you were going to. And he's committed. 
So God commits to Abraham. God commits to Isaac. He says, I am going to bless you. I'm going I'm to do this thing for you. I'm going to work out my plan of salvation for the whole world through you. And then they go off and they're faithless and untrustworthy and they're liars. And, they're, you know, we, we've talked about Abraham a lot. He does a plenty of terrible stuff. And God never goes back on his end of the bargain. And that's a real risk for God. I mean, not really, because he knows everything, but it's him stepping out and going like, yeah, I know this person's super broken, and they're going to let me down, but I'm still going to bless them. Is that fair? No. Is that, is that just? Maybe not in our sense of justice. We have problems with it because it's not the way we would do it. But God has already committed to Isaac that he would be blessed. And there's plenty of stuff that God lets happen in Isaac's life that's painful and, suffer- and bad and, and, and would have gone differently if he'd done different things. And the same can th- be said about Abraham. Abraham makes decisions. I mean, the big one with um, the birth of Ishmael and some others that were the wrong decision. And God lets him feel the pain of that. But at the same time, he never goes back on his promise. And so we shouldn't read this text and go like, well, Abraham and Isaac lied and they got rich, so I'm going to lie and I'll get rich. That's not the lesson, right? No, the lesson is even in their brokenness, even in their sin, God is faithful. And so when you and I, even in our brokenness, even in our sin, even when we screw up tomorrow, tonight, right after church and we feel terrible, God still loves us. God still has enduring promises ahead for us. And there might be consequences to our sin and brokenness and suffering like there were for Isaac and Abraham, but God's not going to go back on his promises. We're going to take communion together, as we always do. One of the difficult things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I read a little bit about um, putting up with suffering. But at the end of the section about loving your enemies, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a really hard statement to get your head around until you begin to understand that Jesus' command is actually something that he himself is going to do in us. Christ in us is the engine that empowers us to be like our heavenly Father. that we would be children that look like our Father comes from the fact that the Spirit of Christ lives in us and is transforming us. And communion is an expression of Christ in us. He says, take and eat, this is my body. Drink from the cup, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. No matter what good or bad we've experienced at the hands of our earthly parents, no matter how much you love or hate the parts of you that remind you of your mom or dad. We are adopted in Christ into a new family with the God of the universe at its head and a promise that we will be transformed into his likeness in the end. And as we remember that in the communion meal, as we take the bread and the cup back to our seats when the band comes up and we sing, 
I'm just going to encourage you. If, you. if you can say that there are parts of you this morning that do not look like your heavenly father, if there are parts of you that are, that are proud and not humble, if there are parts of you that are fearful and not faithful, that, that lie and deceive and don't trust, if there are things that God is poking at your heart and saying, this is an area for growth, no matter where that comes from, it can be helpful to kind of figure out why you are the way you are. But at the end of the day, the way you are, just like all of us, is broken. If you recognize that about yourself, I would just encourage you to come take communion and offer it back up to God. Identify it, name it in his presence, and then accept his promises for you that even though you are who you are, even though you have this particular kind of sinfulness, this particular kind of brokenness that maybe you have a hard time shaking, Give that back to him and accept his love and his promises for you because you in Christ this morning are loved. You are accepted. You are secure. You are significant. And the act of Jesus that we remember in the communion meal of his going to the cross, of his dying for your sin and mine for, and his resurrection from the dead, this is the reminder for us that we belong to him and he is making us into his image, the image of the Father. So let's worship together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.